Good day, Christine. Hello. Nice to see you. For the people who don't yet know who Christine is, uh, Christine is a health and wellness expert, yoga instructor, health and mindset coach, retired chiropractor, spiritual healer, and writer. Have I missed anything? That is a lot. Yes, that, <laughs> that's all of it. And YouTuber, new, new to YouTube. <laughs> and uh, I will link... Uh, Christine's YouTube channel to the description so you can check out her content after the podcast is over. And uh, in your website's about me section, I have read that you help people to explore thoughts and beliefs that form the pictures of their outer worlds. Wow. Uh, that is a very interesting statement. Could you help me unpack it? Yeah, there is a lot of information contained in that one simple statement. What I discovered over my lifetime of practicing as a chiropractor, so helping people with their physical pain and physical health problems by helping to work on their bodies and consult with their diet and nutrition and exercise, um, it became more and more apparent to me over the years that a major component of our physical health is our mind, our thoughts, our beliefs, um, and not only what's going on in the conscious mind, but what's going on in the subconscious mind. And we shouldn't ignore that when we're looking at our health. And so while still absolutely, you know, our diet, our exercise, proper sleep, these things are all pillars of a healthy lifestyle, we should not ignore what's going on between our ears. Our thoughts, our beliefs, our healing, our past emotional traumas and hardships, because that can really, um, sometimes it's the cause of our physical ailments, but at the very least, it contributes to our physical health. And so that's why over the years, I sort of steered my practice more and more toward the thoughts and beliefs and the mental health aspect of helping people live happier, healthier lives. That's fantastic. And uh, for a person that uh, is not well read or well-informed in the subjects of, let's say, mental hygiene or mental health, mm -hmm. what could be some practices that a person could take onto himself in order right. to be healthy mentally? Yeah, absolutely. And like, like any healthy habit, we, have the, we see the most success. It's the least overwhelming. If you start with one basic small step and get that solid and then move on to another, so, so many people have had the experience of, you know, maybe they want to lose some weight and they'll take drastic measures that really are impractical, impractical for maintaining over a lifetime and then the weight just comes back on. Or if you're, if you're not a runner and you want to learn how to run a 10K or a marathon, you know, you don't just get out there and run the 10Ks, you start small. So just take a moment to get quiet and ask yourself, What's, what's one simple, tangible thing I could do to address my mental health, to be happier and healthier? And the answer prob probably is inside of you and, and will come out very easily. One thing will bubble up, and it might be just having a little bit more quiet time, or it could be saying no to things that you want to say no to, but you tend to say yes to. You know what I could give dozens of examples, but see what bubbles up from your heart 
you know, what's one concrete thing I could start with and practice that one thing. And then when you feel good about that, get quiet and ask, okay, you know, what could I do next? But I think that starts to train you to ask your body and your mind, you know, what do you need from me? Rather than, you know, we, we tend to get signals, but ignore them from our body or from our mind. So that's why I like people to, to begin. Sometimes it seems that some people don't really want to address the issues that are making them feel bad. And uh, let's say if you're a friend or a relative of such a person and you see the person suffering, it might make you suffer as well as a consequence and you really want the person to help himself or herself in some kind of ways. So the question here is, why do you think some people don't want to make a change? Uh -huh. Or why do some people instead choose to stay the same, really? even though it's painful, instead of trying to move away from it? Right, right. Oh, if I had the answer to that, the world would <laughs> down my door. Uh, back when I practiced chiropractic, we would have a saying, you can't want the patient to get better more than they want to get better. And, you know, that's a difficult scenario that you raise because ultimately it always does come from within. Now, does it make it easier to have support and resources from the outside? Absolutely. But if without the desire for change coming from the inside, not a lot is going to change. And it's important to meet a person where they are. And so if the only thing they're ready for is to be spoon fed with baby steps, that's okay. That's what they're ready for. And, and you have to trust and have faith that when they're ready for the next steps, whether it's your, whether you're the person to help them with that, or they find somebody else for help with that, you just, it's important to nurture them where they are. And for it to be non-judgmental, to have non-judgmental love for a person while you're supporting them in making the changes. You know, there's a whole step in, in the science of change. And the very first step is the person has to be even willing to contemplate the change. And if the answer is no, there's really not a lot that can be done until they're willing to at least broach the possibility of change or that change is possible. And then there's going to be a phase of just thinking about it before they're ready to take an action step. And then they'll take an action step, but it has to be a first initial action step that they're ready for before they really will commit to it. And we just find there's not a lot of success with trying to jump in at step C when they haven't done step A yet. Understandably. And Maybe I have asked uh, too many questions about people who are on the hard side of life at the moment, yeah. because I believe that uh, yeah. health and wellness practices are not only for the people that are unhealthy or not well. They can also be for the people who are actually in a good health and in a good condition yeah, absolutely. In, in any kind of regards. Bloodborne. And uh, therefore, I, I know you have written two books regarding uh, similar topics. Uh, one one name is uh, Happy Ever After and Hold This Thought. Yeah. Here they are. <laughs> oh, happy Ever After. And Happy Ever After is a book of short paragraphs designed to 
walk a person through and understanding what true happiness is that comes from the inside, the sort of happiness that isn't dependent on external circumstances like your next promotion or finding the love of your life or a certain amount of money or bigger house, the sort of happiness that can't be taken away from you because it's coming from who you are on the inside. And so walking people through small chapter by small chapter and what that is, what that looks like, what it feels like, how to cultivate it, as well as some practical advice on things to do and to not to do to help grow those happiness muscles. You know, we all have them. You may feel, or some people may feel as if they've been very far detached from happiness or that those muscle happiness muscles got very weak, but they can be strengthened. It is inside of you, just like We've had a lot of rain where I am this summer, but the sun is still behind those cloud, those rain clouds. Your happiness is still in there, even when you are feeling at your lowest. And so what can we do to help, you know, burn off that fog, burn off those clouds for the happiness to be experienced again? And also um, that, you know, life has challenges and we won't feel, you know, joy and elated 100% of the time. But that's, again... True happiness is a contentment, a satisfaction, a groundedness that is going to be within a, a character trait within within the inside of you. And then the other really is a companion book. This is a companion journal. Hold that thought because each you, it's very nice to go through this book one chapter per day because they are quite short and it leaves you with an affirmative thought. To you can either focus on it that day or journal about it, and this this has space for journaling on the the thought of the day, just to get your your thoughts rolling, your some ideas from the subconscious mind to come out on that a thought of the day. So thank you, thank you for sharing the info about our books. And from how the books are structured, it seems that the books are mainly made as a daily practice type of yeah. books so yeah it seems like writing is a big part of the practice so how come writing is so powerful mm-hmm. in order to grow those or regrow those happiness muscles yeah especially writing with our hands versus typing on a computer writing by hand in a notebook on a journal whether you save it or crumple it up and throw it away after it really helps to get those some of those buried thoughts, buried feelings, subconscious thoughts out. It's not uncommon in our fast-paced society to be a little detached from our emotions, to have difficulty naming them or even understanding, you know, an emotion that might first feel like anger. If you dig down a little bit deeper, quite often it's fear or sadness or disappointment that's underneath it. And so writing and writing by hand in particular really helps to get the truth of what you're feeling out. And you'll have a lot of aha moments. And somehow writing on a piece of paper where nobody else is looking at it, nobody else can hear you, feels a little safer than speaking the words out loud quite often. It's just activating different sections of your brain and and. There's a there's like a permission, a freedom to allow the word to flow through your hand versus coming out out through the voice. And the publication on Medium, because I have uh, read uh, quite a few of your articles there, 
and I have also submitted some of mine to your publication, Change Your Mind, Change Your Life. Yeah. And uh, for whom is that publication and who are the people that should try to support it uh, by writing or otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, initially, I want to say the publication is good for everybody. <laughs> but particularly if you are the type of person that feels inspired to have personal growth, to be moving forward, to to heal, whether it's physically or mentally or emotionally, to always be the, you know, to continue to be the best version of yourself, but without not talking about striving, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with you. It's not like I'm broken and I need to be made better. It's just the way you would fertilize the plants in your garden to get the most beautiful blossoms on your flower or the most vegetables. It's, it's food. It's for your thoughts, for your soul, for your health to live your, your best, happiest, healthiest life. And so the content revolve, there are articles on physical health and wellness, like fitness and nutrition and that kind of, and taking care of your physical body. There's our articles, typical self-help type articles, uh, learning new skills, better communication skills, relationship skills. There's an element of spirituality, like nurturing the spiritual sides of ourselves, whether we pr participate in religion or not, but just nurturing relationship with a higher being. And a lot, awful lot on mindset, cultivating a more positive mindset, learning to challenge limiting beliefs, uh, overcoming traumatic memories. So all under one umbrella to take care of your mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual health. Well, you have mentioned uh, two words, which is spirituality and religion. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether for you they are synonyms mm -hmm. or are they alluding to different kinds of uh, experiences, different kinds of states of minds? Right, right. In my mind, the words are not synonyms because I look at, when, when I hear the word religion, I hear a denomination that has a very much a human element in it because most religious denominations have rules um, and the rules vary from religion to religion. And in my mind, rules are man-made. Rules are made by humans. When I think of the word spirituality, I think of that inner relationship with a higher being, whatever you choose to call it. Because what one thing that most of the major religions of the world agree upon is that we are a reflection of God or a higher being or the divinity and that we have a little spark of that divine within us. And when I think of spirituality, I think of connecting with that spark of the divine within and having, and then you certainly can, can be both. I mean, religion is an avenue for expressing and expanding your spirituality, or you can study and have a very private relationship with your higher being without going to a building or following the specific rules of a particular denomination. So one, as you have said, is more in a way outwardly bound in terms of ritual and practice Hello. and ceremony and uh, something that differentiates one group from, from another Hello. in some regards. Hello. 
So that could we could call maybe as an organized form yeah. of spirituality. Yeah. And then, then the other one is more personal, more individualistic, more um, experienced directly, maybe without a medium. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, and uh, and both have a role in the world. Sure. And uh, although they are kind of alluding to a little bit of a different qualitative experience, mm -hmm. because. Uh, in my mind, you can be spiritual without uh, having to accord to a specific religion. As well, you can be according to a spe specific religion, but not be spiritual. Mm -hmm. So it's fairly complicated in some regards. And uh, how important is spirituality to the wellness of a person? Right. Well, I do believe that spirituality is one of the major pillars of a healthy lifestyle. You know, our physical health, our emotional health, our mental health, our social health, our relationships. And I do think that spirituality is also one of those pillars. Not everybody agrees with that, and that's perfectly fine with me. It's very important for me. I find that the more that I... um nurture and exercise my spiritual practices, the more centered I feel, the more grounded I feel, the more trust um, or like the less fear or anxiety there is in my life. It's very calming. You know, life in the material world just on its own can be very distracting, very fast, very intense. And I like to balance that with the calming, the grounding, the like the bringing it all back in um, to to have to have that balance. Otherwise, it becomes very stressful in my mind, and and contributes to a lot of the the health problems and unhappiness that people so commonly suffer from. And what are some of your practices? Because you have mentioned spiritual practices, and I, I know there's a multitude of them, but. For you personally, what has worked or what do you feel that is your expression of spirituality? Well, it's definitely a hybrid practice that's unique to me that I've, you know, just developed over the years. And I've always been, even though I don't necessarily belong to an organized religion, they've always fascinated me. So I've studied many of them and uh, read many spiritual texts. Uh, and uh, for Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. And they all have a lot in common, but I like to draw the wisdom from these texts. And I do this day practice yoga and meditation. And yoga is a very spiritual practice. Yoga is very much more than the stretches and exercises we do on our mats. It's a very Western interpretation of yoga, but when you go back and study the ancient texts and the wisdom and philosophies that have been handed down, it's a very spiritual practice. Um, so most days of the week, I start the day with some breath work, some gentle movement just to, to time breathing with motion, with calming my mind, and then spend some time in quiet meditation. Occasionally, I will use mantra and i consider i consider prayer when i speak or ask things of my higher source and i consider meditation 
when I get quiet and just try to listen or just spend time side by side in that quietness with the divine or with a version of me that resides deep inside and, and has a little more wisdom than my human mind. As you, as you have said, that spark. Yeah, the spark. Yeah. And, yeah. And uh, it seems that every person has it, yeah. um, but maybe not everyone recognizes it or doesn't feel like it's uh, important to recognize yeah. that aspect of your own self. And uh, it, it is very interesting how different people relate to the subject. Yeah. Because even hearing the word spirituality or uh, meditation, people start thinking like, oh, we're in the area of woo-woo, yeah. <laughs> so to say. Yeah. I think this also touches upon another subject that I wanted to talk about with you because uh, me being a student of sociology and anthropology in university, and uh, I wrote a bachelor actually about religion. Uh, so I, I studied religion in the anthropological sense. I was very interested in nature-based religions, so to say. And uh, one major question that I had in my mind is, uh, what are the values on which our society is predicated and what kind of states of minds are sought for and, uh, well, encouraged? And uh, in a way, from my analysis, it came to be that we are very focused on the alert problem-solving mode of the mind, yes. which is, which predominates other, every other states of mind. So, um, and maybe in some regard, that is the reason why people with various, so to say, mental disorders or other states of minds are also seen as someone who might be potentially dangerous or something right. to someone to pity. But uh, in other societies, uh, the same people could have been seen as uh, spiritual leaders, shamans, healers, and so on. No. So uh, what I wanted to ask you, I know that you also work with uh, subjects relating to people with ADHD and autism. Uh -huh. And uh, could you a little bit expand on what is autism and ADHD and uh, how do people with these conditions see the world and relate to it? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking because we still are learning so much about ADHD and autism and other what what's termed neurodivergent conditions. Neurodivergent just means that the brain is wired and works a little bit differently from what would be called typical. Now, we still don't have great words to describe these things because it does leave you feeling like one is normal and one is not normal. But I like to describe it like this. To have a neurodivergent brain, some, some people are right-handed dominant and some people are left-hand dominant. I believe it's about 80 or 85% of the world are right-hand dominant, so far fewer people are left-handed. But it doesn't mean that's abnormal. It just means there are far fewer people who are left-handed than right-handed. And they, because this is a, our physical world is designed for people who use their right hand, some people, people who are left-handed struggle with some things. It's a little more difficult for them to write neatly on a piece of paper. They might struggle to use a can opener or a pair of scissors, but it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. 
So having ADHD or being on the autism spectrum is very similar to that. Our, and and I, I am both. I have I was uh, diagnosed as an adult with ADHD and also on the autism spectrum. So I'm an example of the diver diversity in the neurodivergent population because different people can be affected less severely, more severely. I have managed to structure and create what appears to be a very typical, you know, Western lifestyle. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't struggle with things. And this is another reason why I'm so fascinated with studying the brain, studying our mindset, and studying spiritual and relaxation practices that affect our brains. Because people who are neurodivergent tend to have, for lack of a better word, um, the part of your brain that controls the fight or flight is just amped up a little bit higher in the neurodivergent brain. Part of it is wiring how you were born, but part of it probably is learned over time as well because people on the spectrum or with ADHD tend to be more sensitive to the information coming in from our worlds, light, sounds, activity, motion, vibration, you, you name it. So our brains are getting bombarded with a lot of information and, and we lack in the ability to filter out the unnecessary information. So it really can overwhelm the brain, which then sends it into fight or flight because it's so overwhelmed. So there is, a, you know, some of it is learned behavior and some of it is how we are wired. So this is why things like writing, meditation, gentle exercise like yoga, walking, swimming, Pilates, dancing, um, can be so helpful for the neurodivergent mind, just calming it down, stimulating the opposite side of the nervous system, stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system, which controls rest and digest versus the sympathetic, which is fight or flight. So helping to bring more balance to that nervous system and better, um, like recovery of, you know, at the end of the day, when you're just exhausted from all the sensory input that you've been experiencing. So I like to gear my teaching, not exclusively, but be very inclusive of people who are not neurodivergent, just because I know how much these practices can help them. And how common is it? Is it a common thing? Because I also have heard that uh, everyone is on a spectrum right. in terms of, let's say, autism yeah. or ADHD. It just as you have said, for some people, right. it's a little bit tuned up. And maybe for some people in the opposite way, it's too much tuned down. Yeah. So how, how can we see it in terms of uh, the commonality of right. it? You know, I've unread differing information, so I don't have a concrete answer for you. I've read anywhere from 1% to 15% of the population. And, and because it's a spectrum and some people are only minimally affected while others are severely affected, you know, where where's the limit? Where, when do you stop counting people? And there's still so much they're trying to learn because for there's still a stigma today that women don't have ADHD or autism, but that's 
it's not true. It's just that the way medical research has always been done, they only studied boys and then they only studied men and they're just starting to study women and they're discovering it's just as common for women. It might display a little bit differently, but it's just as common. So I don't have a concrete answer for you, but it's enough that everybody has a family member or a friend who would be neurodivergent. I'm certain of that. And yes, while every, while every human can struggle with some of the sensory processing issues that neurodivergent people have, I don't think it's the same as being on that neurodivergent spectrum, because <laughs> if it doesn't impact what you can do and can't do in your life, if it hasn't become possibly even a disability, then I wouldn't consider it as being part of the spectrum. Understood. So that's a good framing of it because, uh, you know, it's just like when you have a certain kind of a disease or a pain in your body and you Google it and you immediately get cancer what? <laughs> like what? Or, or the second worst condition that you what? might be in. So yes, not everyone who is sensitive uh, could have a neurodivergent uh, situation yeah. of happening. Yeah. And, um, but for the people who do, mm -hmm. um, what do you think about how our, our society is structured in order to include them in the daily life of, well, however our societies are running? Right. Not very good. <laughs> Not very for Not world. very good. Yeah. I, I've made a couple of blogs and videos about this. Um, people with ADHD and or on the autism spectrum tend to experience more traumas growing up and in their lives they tend to be bullied more or even if they're not bullied it's because there can be a difficulty in in their caregivers understanding what the child needs that even in the most loving environment those needs just might not be met because you know people are doing the best they can they just didn't have an awareness and again and then even in adulthood extroversion is so applauded as being preferable to introversion but i think that's really just a silly bias that there's no you know data or or logic behind it um and in people you know you're just perceived as different or odd i i have a threshold as to how many conversations i can hold at the same time and it begins hmm. very overwhelming i just might need to get up from the table and go do the dishes instead or or back away or go talk to one person instead of talking to five person people which in our society could be looked at as aloof or rude or bad manners but i'm really just doing it because my brain is like overload and i just need to give it a little bit of a rest so this is why i think awareness is so important and also why i talk about it so freely i mean there's no I, I don't hold back from talking about it because there's no part of me that feels ashamed by it or that I'm, you know, less worthy because of it. And then by helping not only people on the spectrum or, or not only neurodivergent people, but neurotypical people just to understand so that instead of thinking, well, that person's rude, they just walked away, might have more compassion or understanding like, okay, they've had enough. You know, we all need a break sometime. It's not... It's not personal. It, it's not intended to be bad behavior, but it, it just might look different. And just to accept people's differences and 
and understand we're all doing the best we can with the resources that we have and just to be a little more kind and compassionate about that. And for people who have a child with a neurodivergent mind, uh, maybe two questions regarding these children. One is how to recognize if your son or daughter has a neurodivergent mind, because I used to work in schools and uh, I used to teach English and uh, I used to teach kids as well. And uh, some kids were diagnosed with some kind of condition and uh, some kids were not, but from relating to them, you can see that there's something uh, happening mm -hmm. which is not so typical. So one question is how to recognize that your child has a neurodivergent mind and the other one, what kind of uh, education, what kind of measures should be taken in order for him to be the best of himself? Because we also know that people with autism are greatly gifted. Uh, they, they, they tend to develop very unique skills if they're trained and helped to be to develop themselves in the right way. Yeah. So how can parents do that? Yeah, good question. I do want to state I'm not qualified to make diagnoses uh, or to teach somebody how to diagnose someone. But what I would recommend is if somebody with more understanding about it than you, like a teacher or a doctor or a mental health practitioner or maybe a parent of a neurodivergent child points things out to you, it's very almost an instinct, a natural reaction as a parent to resist that, uh, to mm -hmm. discount it. Because there are some common signs and symptoms and, and also a Google search or a YouTube search will show you lists of them like, you know, toe walking, rituals, stimming, withholding things in their hands, temper tantrums are, you, are often an autistic meltdown, not a temper tantrum. Um, not always, you know, seeming like they don't hear you when they call your name. There's a lot of clues, but parents often will just make excuses for them. And as hard as it is, and, and both of my children are neurodivergent in different ways, as hard as it is to accept that we all want the best for our kids and the sooner you can get help, the better it is for your child um, just from a neurodivergent developmental point of view and to teach them coping skills to get through the parts that are difficult to help them reach their fullest potential to help nurture the special gifts that they do have and then also as a parent to help learn how to best deal with the difficult uh, parts of, that can come with it any challenging behaviors that can come with it you know if if your kid needed eyeglasses they would be at a disadvantage at school if you didn't send them to school with their eyeglasses. They wouldn't be able to see the board. They wouldn't be able to read things. And having them wear glasses would make a huge difference. And it's really no different from that. You know, if your child has ADHD or is on the autism spectrum, giving them whatever accommodation that they need is like the accommodation of wearing eyeglasses if you need eyeglasses. It might mean a little bit more time to take tests. It might mean written instructions versus audible instructions. So it, it's just giving them the support that they need to perform their best and succeed. 
I just, I forgot what part two of the question was. You might have to repeat that. <laughs> no, that, that actually answers my question well. Uh, but it raises another question. Uh, when we think about general education at schools, uh, let's say maybe it would be best to first talk about the U.S. because that's where you're at yeah. and where you have been born and lived most of your life, I believe. Yeah. Because I'm coming from a situation that in our country, um, the government decided to close the schools for the people with special needs oh. and just put everyone in the general education. Okay. Well. And, and I, as a teacher, was a little bit appalled by the circumstance. And it's not because I stigmatized the kids. Right. I just realized that uh, they need extra attention and extra help and to put everyone in the same wagon right. for one teacher, especially if there are no helpers, mm -hmm. it's yeah. terrible. Like there's so much divergency in every kind of way in a classroom. And uh, then we need more personnel to actually work. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes uh, one decision has been made and not the other. <laughs> so so I, I a little bit fear uh, for what's going to happen afterwards. But uh, maybe in the U.S. it's not the same. Uh, well, how does uh, the education system deal with that in your country? Okay, well, answer to the best of my ability because I'm not an education expert or specialist. Um, and my children have outgrown the, the public school system now at this point. But the U.S. did do something similar many decades ago, you know, except for the most severe of needs. They tried to integrate the public schools so that you ha did have children with special learning needs in with children that didn't seem to have special learning needs with the intention that maybe some of the classes are fully integrated, but then maybe there are some classes specifically designed for certain learning mm. challenges and also more aids and assistance to help with children that needed it with the belief that, excuse me, that the integration was better than being separate. And I do know that my older son did very much benefit from like integrated preschool and then beyond preschool, then just kind of graduated into the standard curriculum. Um, there are people much smarter and, and more experienced than I am to know if that was the right approach or not. And then in the U.S., um, probably get some hate comments on this video for this, but the, the U.S., it really depends on what state you happen to be lucky enough to be born in because some of the states have very strong public education that is competitive uh, with European and Asian public school education. Other states have very poor public education with very little funding, very little money and resources for anything outside of what is, of what they can provide, you know, the, the most basics. So unfortunately in the U.S., it sort of depends on the state that you are born with in. And I'm very grateful that my children, you know, grew up in the state where, where I raised them because they had phenomenal schools and continued to. Uh, but sadly, that's not the case for every kid in the U.S. Sadly, it most, most of it actually boils down to funding. It boils down so, to funding, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Because uh, in our country, the 
schools were closed for the same reason because of lack of funding and uh, lack of investments and and uh, yeah yeah education is extremely important but uh, but unfortunately it's not always treated as that well anyways uh, mo- moving away from this subject what could be some i wouldn't say the most basic but the most tangible and priority wise important pillars of health in your mind uh, would it be let's say meditation healthy eating good sleep or or how how would you structure that most priority wise important basics for a person to have right well it's hard to remove a pillar and have the structure stay strong so the pillars are all very important your physical health your mental health your emotional health spiritual um, your diet and nutrition. So they are all very important. I think to give you the quick answer on that, I I still think of the mind and your mindset sort of like an umbrella that that goes over all of those pillars. Because as your mindset improves, you're naturally drawn. With a healthy mind, you're naturally drawn to healthy eating. With a healthy mind, you're naturally drawn to wanting to move your body, however moving your body gives you joy, whatever particular forms. You know, when you're when you're in your top mental health, you're naturally inclined to want to have a level of social engagement with other people. So I like to to have that be like the linchpin of all the rest. And then again, just my, my biggest bit of advice is no matter what pillar you're talking about, ask yourself, what is that one solid concrete thing that I can do? It's drink a few more glasses of water each day. Maybe it's walk more or get, you know, 20 minutes of physical exercise in a day. Uh, Maybe it's making sure you have 10, 15 minutes of quiet time, whether it be meditation or prayer or just sitting in nature. You know, what's one concrete thing that you can do to just take your health, you know, if if you give yourself a score of a seven out of 10, what's that one thing you could do that would take it to a seven and a half or an eight? And then when you've got that practice solid, move on to, to one more thing. If you're feeling like you're not at your peak level of health right now, that didn't happen overnight. It happened very gradually over time. And so getting our health back, while you can start right now, or if you kind of fall off the wagon, you can always get it right back on it instantly. You're going to build your health up gradually, just the way it declines gradually. And and be patient with that and give yourself credit for the efforts that you make. And it's just, you know, we're always moving forward. Just keep on that path of making healthy choices and doing things that are good for your mind and your body and your spirit. Wonderful. Very, very good advice. And what is yet to come for Christine? Uh, what are your plans for the future? Are you working on something special? And uh, what, what are people to look forward to? Ah, thank you for asking. Well, I do continue to write and publish my blog articles at the Change Your Mind, Change Your Life um, publication over on Medium. Medium is a platform where a lot of bloggers will put their writing, and it is just a wealth of them amazing resources over there no matter what you're looking for you can find it over there in medium and that's how you and i met and uh exactly 
And then I have a relatively new YouTube channel that's just getting off the ground now with similar themes of health, wellness, mindset, spirituality, short videos as short as seven or 15 seconds to long form videos. Uh, I have a few interviews like this where I sit down with people and it, perhaps uh, you'll honor me with sitting in the opposite chairs and letting me interview you one day. Some interviews, I've got some yoga and meditation, mindset, and then also a section on um, the neurodivergent autism, just answering a lot of questions on um, what it's like for the neurodivergent mind and all geared to help you live your most happiest, healthiest life. That is wonderful. Well, and I believe that I, well, it would be also great to well, jump on the call once again in the future and maybe have a specific episode solely uh, addressing the, the neurodivergent minds because well, it's such a broad topic. Wow. And uh, as you have said, new things are coming out of the scientific field uh, constantly because it's so fresh and uh, mm -hmm. it has been limited in the past and now more and more research. I didn't even know that women were not tested or yeah. uh, researched in the past. Yeah. So so th this is, uh, from one standpoint, it's actually crazy. But uh, from another standpoint, it's where we are at at the moment. Yeah, good point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I would love to have this conversation specifically dedicated for that. So maybe it would be something for the people to look forward to in the future. Yeah, thank you. It's a wonderful idea. We did. We covered a lot of territory today. Uh, and I thank you. Thank you so much for having me here.